0: So again, today's reading is from Proverbs 5, verses 1 through 21. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion and your lips safeguard knowledge. Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps head straight for Sheol. She doesn't consider the path of life. She doesn't know that her ways are unstable. So now, my sons, listen to me, and don't turn away from my wor- the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Otherwise, you will give up your vitality to others and your years to someone cruel. Strangers will drain your resources, and your earnings will end up in a foreigner's house. At the end of your life, you will lament when your physical body has been consumed and you will say how I hated discipline and how my heart despised correction. I didn't obey my teachers or listen closely to my mentors. I'm on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams of water in the public squares, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful fawn, let her breast satisfy you always. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you be infatuated with a forbidden woman or embrace the breast of a stranger? For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes, and he considers all his paths. A wicked's man's iniquities entrap him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Go ahead and remain standing as we pray. Lord, we ask for wisdom, You know your spirit gives wisdom, and ultimately all wisdom comes from you by your spirit, and so Holy Spirit, would you open up our mind and our heart to receive the wisdom that is from above, the wisdom that is true light. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. Allow me this morning uh, to begin with what today's teaching is not. I know that we're talking about sexuality, so I think it's important to tell you what this teaching is not. First of all, this teaching is not a how-to sermon on sex, so that's important to note. Also, this is not a teaching on gender, um, and it's not even really a teaching on who can have sex when, necessarily. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. There are excellent teachings out there on these subjects and you can come to me afterwards and I can give you some recommendations. This morning what I would like to teach you is a wisdom around sex and sexuality. You've been in the book of Proverbs now during Lent and sitting under the sages of old receiving wisdom. And wisdom is the key to living life rightly. That is truly the key. Wisdom, not information, Not knowledge, not even education, but wisdom. Wisdom is how we live rightly ordered lives. Wisdom is the path to the good life. And meaning, what that means is that wisdom is a path to the good life. And not only is it the path to the good life, but wisdom is itself the path is the good life, meaning the good life is not just a destination. You're not trying to gain wisdom and hopefully you reach a destination that is wisdom, but actually staying on the path of wisdom is the good life. It's a way of living. This is important, especially on today's topic, because the sage uses that imagery a lot. Wisdom being a path, something you stay on. And that path, the thing you're on, is the good life itself. And so I wanna talk about wisdom in our sexuality, and I open up with a quote from one of my favorite books on sexuality of all time. You can write this book down. It's called *The Holy Longing* by Ronald Roheiser. And in his section on sexuality, he says this: Sexuality lies at the center of the spiritual life. A healthy sexuality is the single most powerful vehicle there is to lead us to selflessness and joy. Just as unhealthy sexuality helps constellate selfishness and unhappiness and does nothing else, we will be happy in this life depending upon whether or not we have a healthy sexuality. One of the fundamental tasks of spirituality, therefore, is to help us understand and channel our sexuality correctly. This is, however, no easy task. Sexuality is such a powerful fire that it is not always easy to channel it in life-giving ways. Its very power, and it, and it is the most powerful force on the planet, makes it a force not just for formidable love, life, and blessing, but also for the worst hate, death, and destruction imaginable. Sex is responsible for most of the ecstasies that occur on the planet but it is also responsible for lots of murders and suicides. It is the most powerful of fires, the best of all fires, the most dangerous of all fires, a fire which ultimately lies at the base of everything, including the spiritual life. I'll let that quote hang for a second. And I want it to hang because it's so, it's so packed full of wisdom. What do we do with our sexuality? It is a fire. We can't ignore it, we can't repress our sexuality, that would be wrong to live in a repressed sexuality. According to Rollheiser, that would even be inhuman to do so, and also very, very unspiritual to repress our sexuality. But nor can we give our sexuality freedom to do whatever it feels whatever it wants whenever it wants to this is sexual liberation and with the sexual liberation movement that had an epicenter where i live in san francisco tried to do a sexuality without limits without consequence without taboos but sexuality without limits is like a life without limits it will collapse under its own weight and self-centeredness like a black hole This is the very thing we're seeing in Hollywood with the Me Too movement, a whole industry built on sex falling in on itself. So what we're saying is that in order to have a healthy sexuality, we can neither neither repress it nor can we liberate it. Therefore, the only answer is truly to understand our sexuality and to channel it correctly. So what we're saying is that we need a wisdom in our sexuality, and that's what I think we learn from Proverbs. Now, a note. The... The proverb that we read, uh, a note on Proverbs, and you've probably covered this, but the book was written to be used as a training manual for an all-boys school. This is why it's written from a boy's perspective or a male's perspective. This is why the book constantly evaluates women, women through the man's eyes and never a man through the woman's eyes. Its lectures have a father always addressing a son but never his daughter. Now, as long as you understand that, we shouldn't be mad at that. That's what the book is for. It's a, it's it's like a, a it's like a, a male or a boy training school book for that. And since Proverbs is now in our canon in our Bibles, it's actually wisdom for all of us, both male and female, boy, girl, man, and woman. So as we look at this, we can all glean wisdom from it. But I want you to I just want to point out some a glaring thing that it addresses. Um, the way that women are seen through sexuality. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into this. Look at verses one and two in our text today. They tell the hearer of this wisdom to listen, to pay attention, to open your ears, to open your heart to this very powerful and important word of insight. Verses three, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But at the end, she is bitter as gall, a sharp and double-edged sword, her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave, she gives no thought to the way of life, her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not notice. First of all, notice this, the way of life is the way of wisdom. This adulterous woman is the personification of sexual immorality. Now, remember in wisdom literature, wisdom is personified as a woman, and here sexual immorality is personified as a woman. So wisdom is a woman in in Proverbs, but also sexual immorality is personified as a woman. Now if you're new to the Bible, sexual immorality means sex and sexuality outside of the way it's supposed to be. Now a good question to ask here is, what is sex supposed to be? Or another way of asking the question is, what does sex even mean? What is the definition of sex? The word sex has a Latin root word that literally means to be cut off, to cut off, to sever, to amputate, to disconnect from the whole. To be sexed, therefore, literally means to be cut off, to be severed from, and to be amputated from the whole. So, for example, if you were to take a a branch and cut it off from a tree, you would have sexed the branch. You would have cut off the branch. If this branch happened to wake up the next day on the ground, having been cut off from the tree, severed, disconnected, this lonely piece of driftwood that was once part of this great organism, you can say that this branch was sexed. It would wake up knowing in every cell of its little wouldn't being, that if it wants to continue living, if it wants to continue to produce fruit, to bear fruit, to, to make flowers, it must somehow reconnect itself to the tree. Are you with me? It has to somehow reconnect itself. Now, if sex means to be cut off, to be separated from the whole, the question is, what is the great interconnectedness that we were once connected to but are now cut off from? And the answer is everything. You and I were once connected to everything, all that was. The Bible opens with an interconnected world, Genesis one and two. Humanity was connected with each other, with God and with the environment. The, world, uh, the word the scriptures use was shalom. Everything was interconnected. Everything had personal and perfect wholeness. Now our strong desire for sex, especially once we reach puberty, is our painful awareness in every cell of our body, our psyche, our soul, that we are sexed, that we are cut off from the whole. Sex in its basic form is the dimension of our awareness, most times even subconscious awareness, that you and I have been cut off and we want so bad to be reconnected. at the very very essence of what sex is, what the very very essence of what having a sexuality means is that you've been cut off from something you want to be brought back into. Secular philosopher, um, he's atheist turned agnostic now, Elaine de Bouton, has, and he's lectured here in Boston, he's lectured, he's from London, he's lectured in San Francisco, all kinds of major cities, I've seen him in San Francisco, he's brilliant. He's a philosopher, and he believes like an old school philosophy in that you teach people how to live, that's what philosophy does, and you have a school, and he used to open a school called a School of Life, and he just teaches people basically how to live under his philosophical teachings, and he has a series of books on the School of Life, one of his books is on sex. It's called How to Think More About Sex. I want to read a portion from a secular philosopher when he talks about sex. He says this. It's not on the screen. Just listen. Isolation is something we all become acquainted with after the end of childhood. Also, look at and hear all his imagery, uh, his Edenic imagery to like the Garden of Eden. Isolation is something we all become acquainted with after the end of childhood. If we're lucky, we begin comfortably enough on this earth in a state of close and physical, emotional union with a devoted caregiver. We lie naked on her skin. We can hear her heartbeat. We can see the delight in her eyes as she watches us do nothing more accomplish than blow a saliva bubble. In other words, merely exist. Our fingers are tickled, and the fine hairs on our head are stroked, smelt, and kissed. We don't even have to speak. Our needs are carefully interpreted. The breast is there whenever we want it. Our daughter is five weeks old? Nine weeks old. (laughs) It's a little bit about my life. All of this is true. If you have a a baby, all of this is true. This intimate interconnectedness. Then he says this, gradually comes the fall. The nipple is taken away, and we are blithely induced to move on to rice and morsels of dry chicken. Our body either ceases to please or can no longer be so casually displayed. We grow ashamed of our particularities, ever-expanding areas of our outer selves are forbidden to be touched by others. It begins with the genitals, then spreads to encompass the stomach, the back of the neck, the ears, and the armpits, until all we're allowed to do is occasionally give someone a hug, handshake, or bestow or receive a peck on the cheek. The signs of other satisfaction in our existence declines, and their enthusiasm begins to be linked to our performance. It is what we do rather than what we are that is now interest to them. Our teachers, once so encouraging about our smudgy drawings of ladybirds and scrawls depicting flags of the world, seem to take pleasure only in our exam results. Well-meaning individuals brutally suggest that perhaps it is time for us to start earning some money of our own, and society is unkind or kind to us chiefly according to how successful we turn out to be doing just that. We begin to have to monitor what we say and how we look. There are aspects of our appearance that revolt and terrify us, and that we feel have to, have to hide us from others by spending money on clothes and haircuts. We grow into clumsy, heavy-footed, shameful, anxious creatures. We become adults. Definitively expelled from paradise. But deep inside, we never quite forget The needs with which we were born. To be accepted as we are without regard to our deeds, to be loved through the medium of our body, to be enclosed in another's arms, to occasion delight with the smell of our skin, all of these needs inspiring our relentless and passionately idealistic quest for someone to kiss and sleep with. What Alain de Bouton is saying is that we are sexed, and that's how we wake up in the world. And for a short while, our caregivers, in the form of our moms, provide that connectedness, if we're fortunate, but that we're all longing to be unsexed. We all long to be unconnected, to be brought back into shalom. This is part of the experience of being human. For it is the human condition to be sexed, and it's exceedingly painful. Being sexed is exceedingly painful to being cut off, but desiring to be brought back into oneness. The loneliness this brings, the irrational longing this brings, the madness that is our sexuality that this brings. We all want to be with someone, sometimes more than someone. Sometimes we long to be with everyone. If this is true, and it it is true, then we can see that our sexuality is more than simply having sex. As it says in the next slide, it's important, if we desire to be wise about sex, that we know the difference between having sex and having a sexuality. Our culture conflates the two. Having a sexuality means I have sex. It's not true biblically, and I would argue it's not even true philosophically. See, we started off by saying that we cannot be whole without being healthy sexually, and that's correct, but we think that what that means to to have healthy sexuality is to have sex, to have sex. Maybe even some of you in here, when I read the opening quote from Roheiser, thought I was going to talk about being married and how to have, like, healthy, fulfilling sex life, and having a sex life is a tragic reduction to your sexuality, Sexuality, which we all have, is the drive for love, communion, connectivity, friendship, family, affection, wholeness, consummation, creativity, self-perpetuation, joy, delight, humor, and transcendence. It's that thing that the Bible opens up with, for it's not good to be alone. When God said that... He meant that for every man, and woman, and child, and animal, and insect, and planet, and atom, and molecule, and the entire universe. It is not good to be alone. In any field of study, we know this is true, it is not good to be alone. Sex is the energy inside of us that works incessantly against our being alone. That thing that drives you to be around other people, that thing that drives you to to, to want sex is, is that thing that's in us that energy inside of us that makes us not want to be alone. Now, I hope you see why having sex is so powerful. Having sex is not the whole of sexuality, but it is probably one of God's greatest gifts to the planet and offers to humanity the immediate opportunity for genuine intimacy. Because when you're having sex, experiencing orgasm with another human, you feel in probably one of the most intense ways available this side of heaven of being unsexed. When you're with another human, completely naked, completely one physically, you feel, and your brain is wired to make all this real to you, at that moment you feel unsexed or interconnected. You feel unalone. You feel connected. It is why... The scriptures liken the sexual language of oneness between the sexes to describe what ultimate union with God is, that we're one with God, that we are with God, with God, in that biblical language, with. And it's insane and lofty. Look at Proverbs 30, verse 18 through 19. This is, what, this is the wisdom in talking about sex. This is wisdom talking about sex, what sex is. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. All of these images, an eagle, a snake, a ship, are of being one of one being coming into or penetrating the realm of another being. The ship sails, it propels its way through the high seas, it penetrates the high seas, and there's this beauty in the symmetry of the two of them. The eagle soars and rides and glides through the air, penetrates the air, and is in the air. Basically, this is the song, um, Sky Rockets in Flight. Pretty much, I think that's what this is here. Um, and the snake, I, I don't, I still don't understand what that means. <laughs> I don't know if I want to understand what that means, but that basically, this is an erotic poem right here, okay? It's about sexual oneness. The Bible talks at length about the beauty and the power of sex. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. This is the female anatomy. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public square? That's the male anatomy. Let them be yours alone. I might have been ruining this proverb for everyone, by the way. I didn't. I never saw that there. That's 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 bad. Um, Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. The Bible talks gloriously about sex. However, we must avoid the popular modern view that having sex can somehow carry all the things that sexuality is supposed to carry. I think this is like one of the most important things that I want to leave you with this morning. I want you to try, if we can, through wisdom of thinking of this popular idea that having sex is supposed to carry all the things that having a sexuality is supposed to carry. The church, I think, is fairly guilty of this. I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and I'm guilty of this. For years, I told youth in my youth group to not have sex and to wait for marriage because once you wait, it's amazing, but I never followed up. I never, once they got married, like, is your sex amazing? Is sex amazing? We, we load all of our sexuality into the fact of having sex. We load being a sexual being into having sex. And that's not true. I wish I could go back to my youth pastor self and say, that's not true. Stop loading so much of our sexuality and just to wait till you're married to have sex. We think as soon as we get married we're joining in life partnership with someone and we get to have sex and be whole and become completely unsexed. But that's not true. Sex and marriage doesn't automatically mean that you're unsexed. Because that's not what sexuality means. We think that, we load our even marriages with like, I'm supposed to be completely fulfilled and completely, you can be the loneliest person and be married. Sexuality, is about love, community, communion, family, friendship, affection, creativity, joy, delight, humor, self, and self-transcendence in our lives. Meaning, we can have a lot of sex and still lack all of these things. You can be someone who's having a lot of sex and still lack love and community and communion and family, and friendship, and affection, and creativity, and joy, and delight, and humor, and self-transcendence. You could be here, Christian or not, and you're having a lot of sex, but you're not experiencing any of those things in fulfilling ways. However, someone in here who is celibate can have all those things in abundance, meaning people who are not having sex can have all those things in abundance, and why? Because... That's not what sex is necessarily tied to all of those things. Sexuality is tied to all of those things. Having sex is not tied to all those things. Next slide. While having sex should never be denigrated and seen as something that is not spiritual or important, it should not be asked all by itself to be responsible for community, friendship, family, and delight within our lives. Now, we can say that having sex in the way God designed it is awesome, and it is. It's awesome. We, can, we, can, we also cannot put to bear on having sex all the things that it's not responsible for. So we can say, as Christians, yes, yeah, sex is beautiful and amazing and a delight. It's like immediate intimacy and oneness, but it also... We can't put on it to bear all the things that sex is not responsible for. We should not undervalue sex nor overvalue sex. I remember a few years ago, I was in Boston here, visiting Al, visiting church. It was a beautiful day, kind of like the day we had yesterday. I think yesterday is, every single time I'm in Boston, it's was, it was, it was like it was yesterday. I don't know why, every time I come, it's always like this in Boston, I think. That's how I think, anyway. <clears throat> So I get here, and I get, Al tells me it's, it gets pretty cold here, I guess. I don't know. And every time I show up, I'm like, no, it's, it's fine here. It's... Anyway, so it was like yesterday, and we were on Newberry Street. We're eating on a warm day outside like everyone was yesterday. And this was a couple years ago, and we were eating, and because everyone's jam-packed on the on this like outdoor patio, all the tables are really close together. So you're eating right next to people. So you're like in their conversation. So Alan and I are having a conversation. There's all these conversations going on around me. And there's a, there's a group of like four friends sitting next to us. And they were day, day drinking. And there was two guys and two girls. And they were talking. And then all of a sudden, this one girl just got really loud and said this. She said, oh, my gosh. Last night, guys. Last night, I needed sex so bad. So I called up so-and-so, and it was the worst mistake ever. She says this, like, right next to, and I look at her going. <laughs> like, do you want to take this one? Do you want me to take this one? <laughs> and, she, and then all her friends are trying to comfort her. No, it's not that bad. It's so, given her advice, and she could not let it go. No, no, it was the worst mistake I ever made. I remember sitting there and just being really heartbroken. I wanted to turn around and say what you were really looking for was community and family and unconditional love, a meal with friends. What you desired was to be unsexed. You did not desire sex. You desire connectivity. You desire to be put back together. That's what you're really looking for. And everything else is a cheap substitute. And I hope you learned that, but I didn't because it's Al's town and it's his job to do that stuff. So. <clears throat> Look at verses three and four, <clears throat> excuse me, in Proverbs five. <clears throat> For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil But in the end, she is bitter as gall, as sharp as a double-edged sword. The sage here warns against sex outside the way it's supposed to be, the way it was created to be. And the warning here is how appealing sex can be, how it can be um, almost impossible to tell that the honey dripping from the lips of that temptation will kill you. What the sage is saying is that that honey may look sweet But the bee has a sting, and the sting is death. You don't know that. There's even language around this. The speech of sexual temptation is smoother than oil. See, there's a language around sex and sexuality, things we tell ourselves, things we tell others, things that our society tells us. There's a whole language, there's a whole industry built around sex, and, we, and it drips honey. It's smoother than oil, but it, in the end it's bitter, in the end it stings, in the end it's death. Oil in the Old Testament was healing, both external and internal. Oil was used to cook, it was used for religious ceremony, it was used as a medicine, both inside the body and even topically. Oil meant gladness and prosperity. This is the smooth talk that having sex tries to give us, that it will heal our deepest longings and loneliness, that it will bring gladness and relieve our need to be accepted, held naked, not aloneness. This is the smooth-as-oilness talk that we hear in our society, in our, from media, from ourselves even. If I just had more sex, if I was having sex like that, then it would be healing, then I would be whole. But it's as sharp as a double-edged sword. Now I'm going to tell you something, and you not, might not believe me. You might think I'm trying to take something as modern as sex and the issues facing sex today and apply a 3,000-year-old book to it, and it's not quite working. But allow me to point out to you an irony. We live in a culture today that says sex should be liberated from its ancient taboos, that sex can and should be casual, that it can be something that's not a big deal, and not as big of a deal, especially as conservative preachers like you make it out to be. Well, the same culture that is affirming that sex can be casual is the same culture today that is recognizing for the first time the incredible devastation of soul that occurs when someone is sexually violated. A few years ago, the affirmative consent bill was introduced for sex on college campuses because of the amount of rape that happens. Our culture does recognize the power that sex has and how it can destroy our lives when it's used wrongly. This is progress. The Me Too movement, this is progress. But I would say it's not so much about consent as it is about the power that sex has in and of itself. If you still don't believe me, allow me to quote to you one of your own prophets, someone who was interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air. A few years ago, just months before his sexual misconduct scandal broke, she was interviewing Louis C.K. on Fresh Air. This was months before his sexual misconduct scandal broke. Louis C.K. was talking to Terry Gross about parenting and it then got to about how raising your daughters and then it got to about sex and sexuality. And he said to Terry Gross, I think almost every single time I've had sex with someone for the first time I should have waited. Pretty much 100% of the time, I should have waited a little. It never hurts, he says. You get two benefits. One, you realize you don't want to, after all, and there's something about her that, you know, you wouldn't, you didn't want to get that intimate. Or you get more fond of each other, and there's more to connect about if you wait. If you do have sex, you're going to feel really crappy. It's not just, just not worth it, just wait. It's a very big deal to be naked in a room with a human being, to be naked in a bed with another person. That is so intimate. That is such a big deal. And when you don't treat it like a big deal, you get confronted with how big of a deal it is and a surprise when, you, when you're, you know, when, when that urge is over that got you there. So yeah, it took me, you know, like about a thousand repetitions of this same mistake to sort of start to think of it as a mistake, which I think, it is probably a pretty common thing. He says this before. Like, I don't even know if this is like an awakening moment he was having before everything broke. Sex outside of its created order is a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways, both soul and body. But allow me to say something that might come as a bit of a shock, maybe even mess up your idea of sex in marriage. Sex inside marriage does not guarantee the promise of being unsexed. See, you can get married and have sex, but that doesn't mean you have a full sexual maturity. I'm gonna read, again, from Ron Roheiser, a page from his book. Um, the last part of it is on the screen, but the first part isn't. But I tried to say this better myself, I just can't. And this is what he talks about having a full sexual maturity. He says, how then might a Christian define sexuality? Sexuality is a beautiful, good, extremely powerful, sacred energy, given us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an imp- irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move toward unity and consummation with that which is beyond us. It is also the pulse to create, to celebrate, to give, to receive delight, to find our way back to the Garden of Eden where we can be naked, shameless, and without worry and work and as we make love in the moonlight. Ultimately, though, all these hungers in their full maturity culminate in one thing. They want to make us co-creators with God. Mothers and fathers, artisans and creators, big brothers and big sisters, nurses and healers, teachers and counselors, farmers and producers, administrators and community builders, co-responsible with God for the planet, standing with God and smiling at the blessing in the world. By the way, Ron Rohiser is a, is a celibate man. Given that definition... We can see that sexuality in its mature bloom does not necessarily look like the love scenes, perfect body, perfect emotion, perfect light in a Hollywood movie. What does sexuality look like in its full bloom? It looks like when you see a young mother so beaming with delight at her own child that for a moment all selflessness within her has given way to the sheer joy of seeing her child happy. You are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see an artist, after long frustration, look with such satisfaction on the work she has completed that everything else for that moment is blotted out, you are seeing sexuality in its full bloom. When you see a young man, cold and wet, but happy to have been of service, standing on the dock where he has carried the unconscious body of a child, he has just saved from drowning, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see an elderly nun who, having never slept with a man, being married or given birth to a child, has through years of selfless service become a person whose very compassion gives her a mischievous smile, you are seeing sexuality in its full bloom. When you see any person, man, woman, child, who in a moment of service, affection, love, friendship, creativity, joy, or compassion is for that moment so caught up in what is beyond him or her that for that instant his or her separateness from others is overcome and you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see God having just created the earth or just having seen Jesus been baptized in the Jordan River, look down on what has just happened and say, it is good and this I take delight, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. And the last is on the on the screen. Sexuality is not simply about finding a lover or even finding a friend. It is about overcoming separateness by giving life and blessing it. Thus, in its maturity, sexuality is about giving oneself over to community, friendship, family, service, creativity, humor, delight, and martyrdom so that with God we can bring, we can help bring life into the world having sex by that definition is a powerful proxy sometimes a cheap substitute for the real thing that god is after in all of us god wants us to be unsexed god wants us to be whole and since sexuality is all about connection and talking about this throughout this throughout this the feeling of disconnection is real. That feeling that you are disconnected, that feeling that you are disconnected even though you might be having a lot of sex, either married or not married, is real. And that might be exactly where you are today, feeling cut off, feeling this urge. Maybe if you've, given your, if you've not disciplined your sexuality, that urge always turns itself into sex in some perverted form, whether pornography or sleeping around, but you know every single time, no matter what society says or what you try to tell yourself, it's not right and it never, never satisfies on the promise of the temptation, ever. So I'll end by saying this, that God desires connection with you, intimacy with you, oneness to be with you in the biblical term And this is what the cross is all about. The cross is about God's connection with you. God's connection, oneness with you. This is exactly what Jesus was on about when he was on his way to the cross. He was sitting his disciples down and all he could talk about was when I go to the cross, you get to be one as I'm one with the Father. You and I are going to be one. You get to be brought into this divine dance. You get to be brought into this relationship with God. You get to be unsexed. No matter where you've come from or no matter what you've done or where you've been, it's not based on your performance, it's not based on your actions, it's based on God's movement towards you. He wants you to be one with him. The beginning of a healthy sexual ethic and a healthy sexuality is oneness with God, is forgiveness from God. It's him cleansing you, freeing you, and then remaking you in his way according to his wisdom. I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna sit silent for a couple moments and ask how the Holy Spirit might lead us to respond
0: to this. Let's pray.
1: Holy Spirit.